This is Getting Ready for Sunday from Corpus Christi Catholic Church in Tucson, Arizona. I'm Deacon Mark from Corpus Christi. Getting Ready for Sunday is a short look ahead at the scripture readings that will be used in the Masses to be celebrated over the coming weekend. This time we'll be looking ahead to the Liturgy of the Word for the second Sunday of Lent in year B of the Church's three-year cycle of Gospel-centered Mass readings. Let's look at them in the order in which we will hear them proclaimed. The first reading comes from the book of Genesis, chapter 22, The Testing of Abraham, and it reads as follows. Some time afterward, God put Abraham to the test and said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, Take your son Isaac, your only one, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, There, offer him up as a burnt offering on one of the heights that I will point out to you. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. Next, he bound his son Isaac and put him on top of the wood on the altar. Then Abraham reached out and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham! Here I am, he answered. Do not lay your hand on the boy, said the angel. Do not do the least thing to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you did not withhold from me your son, your only one. Abraham looked up and saw a single ram caught by its horns in the thicket. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering in place of his son. A second time the angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven and said, I swear by my very self, oracle of the Lord, that because you acted as you did in not withholding from me your son, your only one, I will bless you and make your descendants as countless as the stars of the sky and the sands of the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the gates of their enemies, And in your descendants all the nations of the earth will find blessing, because you obeyed my command. There's some drama there, huh? This is a very well-known story from the Hebrew Scriptures, and you don't need to be a Scripture scholar to see the parallels between Isaac and Jesus. For example, Isaac is Abraham's only son. Jesus is God's only son. Isaac was a divine gift to Abraham and Sarah, since they were beyond the ages of childbirth, miraculously conceived. Jesus was a divine gift to humanity, miraculously conceived. God asks Abraham to sacrifice his only son. God willingly sacrifices Jesus his only son, out of love for humanity. Abraham takes Isaac to Mount Moriah to perform the sacrifice. Mount Moriah is the site of Jesus' execution, called Calvary. Isaac carries the wood to the site of the sacrifice. Jesus carries his wooden cross to Calvary. Abraham bound Isaac to the wood on the altar. Jesus is nailed, bound, to the wood of the cross. The parallels continue, but you get the idea. 
Isaac, of course, having been spared, will become one of the three great patriarchs of the Jewish faith, along with his father Abraham and his son Jacob. Jacob will have twelve sons who, in turn, become patriarchs of their respective tribes, and the twelve tribes of Israel become the nation of Israel. Isaac has another son, Jacob's fraternal twin, Esau. Most scholars agree that Esau's descendants would form the Arab peoples from whom the Islamic faith would emerge. So, from the lineage of Abraham, the world receives the three great religions of Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. Now let's turn to the second reading. It comes from the eighth chapter of St. Paul's letter to the Romans. It is a stark contrast to the feeling one might have gotten from God's instruction to Abraham we just heard from the book of Genesis. Offer your only and much-loved son as a holocaust to me. That's a little scary. But proving to himself that his trust in God, his desire to discern God's will and to act in accord with it, Abraham is fully ready to give Isaac over. Isaac, by the way, is not exactly Abraham's only son, but his eldest son, Ismael, has already been lost to Abraham. Isaac, born of the presumed barren Sarah, is the one who is most precious, who is Abraham's means to a posterity. Paul turns the picture of a God who would make such a horrifying request to sacrifice one's most beloved son. Paul turns that completely on its head. God spares Abraham's son. God hands over to humanity his beloved son, Jesus, the Christ. We, broken and disordered in our desires, kill him. Paul drives home the point that God truly does give us all. He reminds his readers that the same Jesus Christ killed by humanity, is the one who now is our advocate, interceding on our behalf. God's forgiveness and mercy truly are infinite. So now we come to today's feature attraction. Each year, on the second Sunday in Lent, our gospel story is the Transfiguration. It is clearly an important event and is recorded in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John's Gospel also alludes to it, and St. Peter refers to it in his second letter. This transfiguration event clearly made a significant impression on the early followers of Jesus. We take care so that we don't forget it, in part by repeating the story not just every year, but twice every year. In addition to this coming Sunday, we celebrate the Feast of the Transfiguration each year on August 6th. As with last week's account of the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, the Gospel accounts of the Transfiguration differ slightly from one another. I encourage you to get out your Bibles later on, and as part of your Lenten commitment to prayer, read all three versions. You'll get a better understanding of this remarkable event. Before we look at Mark's account in particular, let's look at the Transfiguration in general. The Transfiguration is identified by many scholars as one of the five major milestones in the Gospel accounts of the life of Jesus. 
The others are identified as his baptism, his crucifixion, his resurrection, and ascension. It's a significant event with the disciples Peter, James, and John. Prior to the transfiguration, they and all of Jesus' disciples had seen only Jesus' fully human nature. The transfiguration made manifest to only those three men was a first glimpse of the divine nature of Jesus. This vision was a prelude to the glory of the resurrection on Easter and the eventual salvation of the followers of Jesus. While they may not have understood it at the moment, the transfiguration provided powerful evidence of Jesus' divine nature, and it provides a necessary counterbalance for his disciples to see before witnessing the coming humiliation and scandal of his torture and death on the cross. This theme is expounded in the preface of the Mass for this day. The preface is the prayer the priest says immediately before the Eucharistic prayer. The Transfiguration is a miraculous event and stands out from Jesus' many other miracles in that the miracle is manifest in Jesus himself rather than someone or something else. Mount Tabor is the generally agreed-upon site for this event. It's located about six miles east of Nazareth and eleven miles west of the Sea of Galilee. In this low-lying land, its 1,840-foot-high peak provides a commanding view of the Jezreel Valley. Jesus grew up within sight of it. The Church of the Transfiguration, in the care of the Franciscan Order, now sits atop Mount Tabor. Here, then, is Mark's Transfiguration account, the one we will hear proclaimed this coming weekend. This is a reading from the Gospel according to Mark. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became dazzling white, such as no fuller on earth could bleach them. Then Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were conversing with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus in reply, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He hardly knew what to say. They were so terrified. Then a cloud came, casting a shadow over them. Then from the cloud came a voice. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone but Jesus alone with them. As they were coming down from the mountain, he charged them not to relate what they had seen to anyone, except when the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what rising from the dead meant. The Gospel of the Lord. Let's not skip over the seemingly disposable first words here, after six days. What's important about the six days? Why go up the mountain on the seventh day? Six days earlier was Jesus' prophecy to Peter and the others that he would have to suffer, die, and be raised. Jesus called on his disciples to be willing to do the same. 
It was shocking, to say the least. It was a real stumbling block for them, as it is for us. We all would prefer the resurrection without the scandal of the cross. Jesus did not leave the prophecy there, though. He promised that among those present to hear his words were some who would see God's kingdom break through in power, a vision to sustain them as they took up their own crosses. That's what happened six days before. It's significant also that all three of the synoptic gospels locate this event on a mountain top. This location has a purpose. Throughout all Jewish history, mountains were understood to be places to get closer to God, or places where God would speak to his prophets. Consider, Noah's Ark came to rest on Mount Ararat, and the Noahic Covenant was made there. Moses met God on Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments. The prophet Elijah, fleeing from the evil Jezebel, hiding on Mount Horeb, meets God there. And the list goes on. On this mountaintop, we see Jesus in a meaningful parallel with himself and Moses, the lawgiver, and with Elijah, the greatest of the Jewish prophets. It's quite likely that Jesus' disciples, being good, observant, first-century Jews, would have immediately understood that this meant something momentous was taking place. Indeed, here we see that in Jesus the law of Moses is superseded, and the ancient prophecies are fulfilled. There's also a seven-day tie-in to the experience of Moses. Consider, Moses went up the mountain of Sinai on the seventh day. After six days, that is, on the seventh day, Jesus goes up to the top of a mountain suspected to be Mount Tabor in the region of Galilee. Moses takes three companions with him, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, two brothers and the soon-to-be leader. Jesus takes three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, two brothers and the soon-to-be leader. Moses' face shines after being in God's presence, reflecting God's glory. Jesus' clothing becomes luminous, dazzling white, radiating his own divinity. And this list, too, goes on. The Greek word translated here as transfiguration is metamorphothē, from which we get the English word metamorphosis. Unlike Matthew or Luke, in their accounts which focus on Jesus' face, Mark focuses on Jesus' clothing. And his clothes became dazzling white, such as no fuller on earth could bleach them. Mark has a reason to say this. In Scripture, heavenly beings, angels, are described as clothed in white, but not just a regular white, a supernaturally luminous white. Mark is emphasizing Jesus' divine nature. This transfigured Jesus is, for the disciples, a glimpse of his divine presence. The presence of Moses and Elijah at this event is further significant in that each of those two had experienced theophany. 
Theophany is the term for an encounter with a visible manifestation of God. Moses on Mount Sinai and Elijah on Mount Horeb. Again, Peter, James, and John would have been familiar with those stories and would likely understand on a deep level the significance of this glimpse of Jesus' divinity. Elijah, the Hebrew scripture says, did not die but was carried to heaven in a fiery chariot. Moses did die a natural death after leading the Israelites to the brink of the promised land. But on this mountaintop, in this moment, Moses is very much alive and speaking with Jesus. Moses' presence here can be seen as an early glimpse of the resurrection all of us wait in hope to experience. Mark writes that Peter hardly knew what to say. They were so terrified. Peter is having an understandable reaction. The three disciples stand in awe of the majesty, the glory, the power of God. What would you say? What could you say? If most people get tongue-tied in the presence of a celebrity or a powerful office holder, and they do, this moment presents an infinitely greater obstacle to eloquence. Peter manages, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. It sounds to me sort of like, uh, nice to see your friends, and that's an awesome outfit. The rest of Peter's statement is much more meaningful, especially for a first-century Jew. He proposes making three tents, one each, for Jesus, Elijah, and Moses. There are a couple of very plausible explanations for this. One assumes that Peter is making a reference to the long-established Jewish feast celebrating their liberation from Egypt. It's called by various names, including the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Tents. The Hebrew word is Sukkoth, literally meaning shelter, tent, hut. The feast involves constructing tents, living in them, and feasting on the fall harvest. This eight-day celebration also commemorates coming into their new promised land, perhaps a forward allusion to Jesus leading humanity to the promise of new and eternal life. Just as Moses died, having brought his people out of slavery to a new land of freedom, so too would Jesus die to accomplish our exodus from slavery to sin and death. Another much simpler explanation for Peter wanting to build tents is simply this. Maybe Peter just wants to prolong the moment to stay right here where this glorious event has occurred. What do you say? Let's camp out up here. I sympathize wholeheartedly with that sentiment. Whenever I've had one of those momentary connections, perhaps a flash of insight, or one of those visceral, palpable touches of God's love, I don't want the moment to end. How about you? Then a cloud came, casting a shadow over them. Then from the cloud came a voice. This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. It's obvious that this is the voice of God. Most scholars agree that God's command to listen to Jesus had immediate meaning for those disciples in the moment and for everyone else in perpetuity. 
Jesus surpasses both Moses and Elijah. He's not just another lawgiver. He is not just another prophet. He is not only the Messiah. He is the beloved Son of the Father. The cloud has meaning too, of course. It has made appearances before. The cloud would descend upon the tabernacle of Moses to indicate that God was present with his people. It was a sign of God's presence during the Exodus, and the same is true here at the Transfiguration. God is with his people in the person of Jesus, the Christ, the beloved Son of the Father. It is also a glimpse of the mystery of the Trinity. For in this event we see the triune God, God the Father in the voice, God the Son in Jesus, God the Holy Spirit in the form of the cloud. Thanks for listening. I hope you find this of value. Your comments or questions are welcome. My email is deaconmark at cccccucson.com org. That's four C's, the word Tucson.org. Next week, it's Jesus throwing money around, the cleansing of the temple. So now, show up for Mass, in person or online, and may God richly bless you.